Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. This is the Word of God. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of His majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have as more sure the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, And the morning star arises in your hearts. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would open our eyes and ears to be able to hear and see the truth, the reality of your word today. Would you give us the courage, Lord, then to receive the word and change our lives to submit accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well... If there's one passage of Scripture that illustrates the necessity of understanding the true nature of God's Word, I think this this is it. This one's it. This is my, uh, just has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And when you consider and understand exactly what Peter is saying here, it leaves no doubt that divine inspiration is the foundation of Christ's church. God's Word is the foundation for His church. Make no mistake about that. And that is why, if you will take a look at the new logo there, you'll see right down at the bottom, it says uh, this passage of Scripture right down at the bottom as the foundation, and uh, pointing to the church. Feelings are not the foundation of the church. Thoughts and ideas, or God speaking to you personally, are not the foundation of the church. Signs and wonders are not the foundation of the church. Programs and events are not the foundation of the church. Not even our experiences are the foundation of the church. Just think about it. I know that to us, if something happens to us, if we experience it or we think we have an experience, then we feel like that's reality. But in fact, that can be deception. We know of a of a being that supposedly lowered down into the cabin of a man named Joseph Smith and gave him these golden tablets. And from that experience, supposedly an entire religion was derived. We cannot go off of experience. Experience cannot be the foundation of the church. God's word is the foundation of the church. And Jesus told Peter, uh, when Peter made that proclamation to him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Uh, Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So in other words, divine inspiration of his word. If you just stop and think about it for a moment and really, really think about this truth in our passage, verses 16 through 18 here, Peter says, we did not just cleverly make up these far-fetched stories. We didn't get in a room somewhere and, and, and... have a brainstorm and come up with all of these ideas. Like we were eyewitnesses. We were part of this whole thing. We were not only eyewitnesses of Jesus and his miracles, but 
we were also eyewitnesses of this major event that took place in Christ's life and ministry, his actual transfiguration in Matthew 17. And rather than turn there and go through that for the sake of time today, I'm just going to kind of put it all together in a nutshell. He's saying we had this experience on that mountaintop unlike any other and only three of us were allowed to go along, Peter, James, and John. And, and this was, folks, the experience of all experiences, okay? When it comes to validating Jesus as the Son of God, it doesn't get any more real than this right here. Peter said they witnessed his majesty, his heavenly glory. A light brighter than the sun was emanating from Christ through his clothing. His, his clothing becomes bright white. And if that was not enough, suddenly Moses and Elijah are there standing with Jesus, having a conversation with him. And this is all so significant in in what Christ was here to do. Um, While living, think about Moses. While living, Moses was God's chosen man, okay? God's representative as the lawgiver. He gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the law. Whereas Elijah was God's chosen man, he was God's representative as a prophet. So you have the lawgiver and the prophet who are there talking with Jesus, and those two represent the whole of the Old Testament. Do you understand? The law and the prophets. That's what they called it, the law and the prophets. And as witnesses, that's what they're seeing here. Moses and Elijah... And you have Peter, James, and John there as well. And these three were, of course, instrumental in the founding of the church and the writing of the New Testament. So you have Christ as the central figure. And then on one hand, you have the representatives of the Old Testament. And on the other hand, you have the representatives of the New Testament. The Word of God and God's plan was was represented right there on that holy mountain. The man in the middle, Christ himself, being the central figure of all Scripture, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But not only that, he's the central figure of all human history, isn't he? If that was not enough, immediately God the Father, it says, gave Jesus glory and honor, first as a bright cloud that overshadowed them. And then in an utterance, Peter says, uh, that God, the majestic glory, that's notice it's capitalized there. They didn't, they didn't say the word God. They would describe him by his attributes. So they called him the majestic glory. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you look at the actual account, the last thing he says is, listen to him. Listen to him. So I hope you realize this morning the gravity of this moment in Christ's life. Five eyewitnesses there, two of them which had already, one of, one of them died, one of them was taken up in a chariot of fire. And, uh, and then you have Peter, James, and John from the New Testament, and God the Father making this divine proclamation. He says, listen to him. And it causes me to recall the opening words of the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1, 1, it says, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, and in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, and the ministry of his Son. The fathers of the faith and the prophets wrote of this coming Messiah. The apostles wrote of the Messiah who came and who will come again. God's 
chosen eyewitnesses recording the divine revelation about Christ, past and future. Do you understand? This was a major moment, and it's all revealed. All of this is revealed in what the word we use, we call prophecy. Prophecy. Now here in verse 19, Peter's making a jaw-dropping statement. When you think about this, you think about what's going on in this major moment. He says, quote, we have as more sure the prophetic word. We have not experiences, not even that experience on the mountain where we heard God and Elijah and Moses and all that. We have as more sure the prophetic word, more sure than even that mountaintop eyewitness experience of all human experiences. He's saying that the word of God that we hold in our hands is prophetic. And it is more sure than anything else in this world. Amen? Again, just you, you take account of what happened there. Jesus lit up Moses and Elijah, and he heard God the Father. And still he says, we now have the more sure word of prophecy, divinely inspired prophecy. Thus saith the Lord prophecy. And so therefore, the entirety of God's word is prophecy. And here's what we need to understand. It consists of two different kinds of prophecy. There is forth-telling prophecy. Forth-telling prophecy, proclaiming the truth as it is. And then there is foretelling prophecy, not predictions, because predictions are predictions. They may or may not come true, right? People predict on sporting events. God doesn't predict. God prophesies. When he says it's going to happen, it happens, okay? So there's forth telling and foretelling, and both are always 100% true and 100% accurate. And we believe that when the canon of Scripture was closed, God speaks through His Word alone, and modern-day foretelling prophets, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, foretelling prophets do not exist, okay? So God no longer has men out there walking around saying, thus saith the Lord, and it's held on the same level as God's word, all right? So important to understand. Uh, and then, of course, God has gifted men in the church. He's given men to his church through which there is proper preaching and teaching, biblical preaching and teaching. And when God's word is preached, what God has divinely said is being proclaimed. And today, however, and on the last Sunday of each month, here's kind of what I want to let you know where we're headed on the last Sunday of each month, I want to focus on the foretelling type of prophecy, and I want to do so chronologically, okay? So we're going to go through each book of the Bible, and I'm going to lay a foundation for you consisting of the nature of foretelling prophecy, the rules of foretelling prophecy, and the timeline of prophetic events. As well as I possibly can, I'm going to list each prophecy in every single book of the Bible, whether or not they've been fulfilled or whether or not they have yet to be fulfilled. And my hope is that through this study, you will see God proclaiming history before it takes place and then seeing the divine pinpoint accuracy of each fulfillment. And first, that you will understand why Peter made such a bold statement statement by saying this is the more sure word of prophecy, you will have absolute confidence that this is God's word. Folks, as a believer, 
I don't know how you exist as a believer if you do not believe that God's word is his, thus saith the Lord, word of prophecy. And that is certain. I just don't see how it happens and how people live their lives with such ambiguity, not knowing what is actually true and what is not. Second, knowing the nature and the rules of prophecy, you yourself will come to a conclusion, an obvious conclusion, in your theology concerning the end times. And the fancy word for that is eschatology. It just means the theology about the end times, okay? I'm convinced that if you hold to a consistent hermeneutic throughout all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, you will be able to understand prophetically, number one, what God has said and how he has always fulfilled prophecy, what God, what is yet to be fulfilled, and number three, where this whole story of redemption will end up. It gives us great, great confidence in the future. So my goal, as I said, is to go through this methodically and give you opportunities to ask questions, and we're going to work through this together. But I just believe that you can't really sure up your what you believe about end times until you understand the nature of prophecy and the rules of prophecy itself. As I said before, you don't just pick out an eschatology as is very common these days like you do when you go in and pick out a new pair of shoes at the shoe store. You walk through and see which colors you like and, and what you like about this and what you like about that, and then you make a decision. That's not how theology works, folks. Theology is guided by what God's Word says, and especially if it hinges on God being true to his word, we should get it right. Amen? I believe that it matters a great deal what you believe about the accuracy with which God has kept his promises in the past. And also what you believe about the accuracy with which God will keep his promises in the future. He hasn't changed. He's unchanging. And today will be more of an introduction of the necessity of understanding the purpose and the power of prophecy in the life of every believer. It has real-world, everyday benefits in the life of the believer. As I've mentioned before, one-third of the Bible is comprised of this foretelling type of prophecy. One-third of the Bible is comprised of this foretelling type of prophecy. And unfortunately, in modern times, it's been abused, it's been caricatured, it's been downplayed, and at times just tossed aside and ignored altogether, and several accusations are made about why we shouldn't study it. Uh, some of them include only date-setting fanatics care about prophecy, absolutely untrue. Uh, we do not in any way uh, put our stamp of approval on date-setting. You don't need to set dates or read 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. I read the book back in 1987. Guess what? He didn't come back. And there are so many books like that that have been written and released. And, and uh, every time you some, some guy out there sets a date, we know for certain that is a day that Christ will not return because he said no man knows the day or the hour. Amen. So uh, another thing they say is that prophecy conferences are like a scheme so preachers can take advantage of uh, people's um, love of, of the prophetic and, and sell their books to the fanatics. Like, I've heard that one before, too. Well, I mean, every, every conference I've ever been to, the preachers, preachers sell their books. So uh, that's just silly, in my opinion. They also say it's a trend 
It's a fad, and there's truth. There's some truth to all of these, but we need to be careful when we toss it all out. They say it's too confusing. It's too scary. It's too controversial, too divisive. It's fantastical. Uh, It is escapism. It's too much of a distraction, and it takes people's eyes off Jesus. Those are all things that I have personally heard. And again, I am certain that aspects of each of these exist among the ranks of those who are really, really involved in biblical prophecy and those folks who go to just about every, you know, end times prophecy conference that, that uh, they have. But I believe these assertions are uncharitable in their nature. They describe only those really on the fringes of, of folks who truly love um, prophecy. Uh, worst of all, this whole attitude actually flies in the face of what the Bible actually says about prophecy, that it's a gift that God has given his church. Prophecy serves to promote the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It serves to promote the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And Revelation 19.10 says, this is important, Revelation 19.10 says, the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about him. And as we have seen, God's chosen men in ancient times, they pointed ahead to Jesus, and his apostles point to Jesus. And the church has a responsibility to properly teach on prophecy, and in so doing, Jesus will be exalted, and the gospel, the whole gospel, will be preached. And the more confidence we have in God's word, the more convinced we are of truth, and the more we will live according to our own biblical convictions when we have confidence in the word of God. And today I'd like to point out these three truths as as we're here together with God's word before us. Prophecy is purposeful, it is powerful, and it is practical in the life of every believer. Prophecy is purposeful, it is powerful, and it is practical in the life of every believer. First, prophecy is purposeful. Three areas I want to highlight this morning concerning the purpose of prophecy. One is that prophecy, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, prophecy is unique to Christianity. The Bible exclusively gives specific details and prophecies that have been fulfilled perfectly throughout human history. No other literary work has ever done this in human history. Not one. There has not been one fulfilled prophecy found in the teachings of Confucius, of Buddha, in the Quran, in the sacred writings of the Hindus, in the Book of Mormon. However, God's word is full of fulfilled prophecies, which we're going to cover all of these uh, through our study. Not even so-called prophets like Nostradamus gets everything right. He's always, he's close, but he's always just a tad bit off, and sometimes he's completely wrong. God's men, God's prophets are never wrong. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the standard was, if you give one false prophecy, you're going to be stoned to death because you spoke when God didn't speak. That was his standard. And folks, it's the same standard today. Do you understand why I take God's word so seriously? And I want to proclaim only what he has said in his word, because I don't ever want to step out and interject my opinions or my own take on scripture. I only want to say what God has said. I am but a herald and I give the message of the king verbatim. That is my goal. That is my hope. 
Secondly, prophecy validates the divine nature of Scripture. As I mentioned, only the Bible contains hundreds of specifically fulfilled prophecies. And these prophecies pertain to the rise and fall of various cities, nations, empires, and even individuals throughout human history. And just to name a few, in Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, Jeremiah prophesied that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. And of course, we know that the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. Isaiah 44, 28, 300 years before a man named Cyrus existed, Isaiah prophesied that the captive children of Israel would be set free by a man named Cyrus and that they would return from Babylon to rebuild their city, Jerusalem. In Ezra 1.1, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. That is exactly what happened. In Daniel's chapter 2 and 7, he prophesied of the order of the Gentile world empires that would rise and fall until Christ came. And there are so many examples of prophecies that have been made in Scripture and then fulfilled. And again, I'm not going to go into detail of all these because we're going to cover all of these in detail, okay? But you can mark those down and go look them up later if you want extra homework, okay? Um, again, there are so many examples. Uh, third, prophecy validates Jesus as the Son of God. It validates Jesus as the Son of God. I talked about this last week and the week before. The Bible contains over 300 prophecies concerning Christ and his ministry. And we saw the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of those was mathematically impossible. And I kind of I beat that, that dead horse the last couple weeks, and I wanted to make that point. I hope you guys got it. You know that there are over three, that was only eight prophecies is mathematically impossible. But there are over 300 prophecies about Christ and his coming. In Psalm 22:16, it's prophesied that Jesus would have his hands and feet pierced. David wrote this 700 years before crucifixion was ever even a thing. And David prophesied that the Messiah would have his hands pierced. 700 years before the Romans perfected the, the death art of crucifixion. And not only is prophecy purposeful, but prophecy is powerful. Prophecy is powerful. Why is prophecy powerful? Because it reveals the future. It tells us what is ahead. From our perspective, we can look backward in the past to see that God has done what he said he would do. And we see these prophecies fulfilled. But for us, there's also great power in looking ahead to the future. And we trust in what God has said will happen. And we believe that if he said it was going to happen, it's going to happen. And there has never been one generation, I want you to think about this, there's never been one generation in all of human history of God's elect that did not have some futuristic prophetic word to put their hope in. Not one. From what God says to Satan in Genesis 3.15, which some would call the first prophecy of the Bible, outright prophecy, there are others, of course, uh, kind of intertwined, and we're going to talk about that next month. Uh, and it's so exciting to see. It really is mind-blowing. But in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Of course, speaking of Christ. And every believer has been able to look ahead and put their faith in the future fulfillment of God's prophetic 
promises. And folks, we are no exception. Peter warns in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verses 2 through 4, he says, You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Where is it? You've been talking about this. You know the thing that I hear from people the most is, Ah, oh, my grandpa talked about the return of Christ. That was not that long ago. <laughs> They've been talking about the return of Christ since they watched Him uh, ascend to, to be with the Father. Of course we're talking about. There's an urgency, an imminency to the return of Christ. And so... Uh, Peter is warning here that in the end, mockers will come and will make fun of the idea that Christ is going to return. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, sleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's, that's the case that they make. But do not lose heart, you guys. Do not get down in the dumps and don't be swayed by the mockers. God knows that we need this kind of hope, and He gave us something to put our hope in. And that need, that hope, will remain until every single prophecy has been fulfilled. And that is why it's called our blessed hope, the blessed hope of the believer. The elect will look ahead in hope until every single promise has come to pass, until all things, all things are made new. And this will not take place until eternity future, and so I don't want you to miss out on this blessing. Obviously, we can't know everything about the future. The Bible only tells us what we need to know for now. We do know that Jesus is coming back to receive His church, amen? And we do know that He's going to return to judge the living and the dead righteously. He's going to return to bring perfect justice, to right every wrong. The Bible says every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And that's the living and the dead. That's the lost and the saved. All will confess that He is Lord. There's no escaping it. It will happen. And the second reason prophecy is powerful is that prophecy is a tool for evangelism. It's a tool for evangelism. If you just turn to Acts 8 and read the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, the eunuch is in turmoil trying to understand these prophetic scriptures about the Christ. And Philip explained the passage in Isaiah 53, going back to Isaiah and showing him how Christ fulfilled that prophecy. The lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And then, of course, we know that the Ethiopian eunuch repented. He believed and he was baptized. He said, here's water. What is hindering me from being baptized? And he got baptized right then and there, if you read the first gospel sermon preached in Acts 2, 14 through 39, the apostle Peter uses examples of fulfilled prophecy. He preached Christ was crucified and raised from the dead exactly as the Hebrew Old Testament prophets had foretold. Thousands were saved, and of course, this was the explosion of the birth of the church. And uh, all of this was prophetic. All of this was him pointing back to Scripture. And for us, again, the imminency of Christ's return should cause us to live with urgency. It should be something we think about on a daily basis. We should share the gospel whenever we have the chance and not be afraid, but know 
and uh, that, that Christ is returning, and it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be at any time, and so that should give us the courage to share the gospel and to not be timid and not be afraid. Amen? We need to be active in sharing the gospel, folks. So thirdly, we moving on here, thirdly, prophecy is practical. Prophecy is practical. It's practical because prophecy does a couple things. It promotes sanctification. Uh, when, when foretelling prophecies come to pass, obviously, that adds proof, evidence, eternal weight to the forth-telling type of prophecy, which is preaching and teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. And such preaching calls sinners to repentance. It elevates our worship. When you know what's true about God, you can uh, stand here and sing, Great is thy faithfulness. You can sing, Be thou my vision. And it really means something because God's word has, has enacted something in you and you know that the words that you are singing are truth. So we're not just going through the motions. We're not just, you know, humming or singing watermelon or whatever the case may be. We're actually engaged in worship and we are proclaiming truth in the act of worship because we are proclaiming what God's word says is true. It spurs us on to personal holiness. Now, that's something that seems to me to be waning in, in the church is the idea of personal holiness and, and what it means to have that desire to look like Christ, to act like Christ, and to reflect his nature. God has proven who he is in his prophetic word, and therefore we should take every jot and every tittle of God's word very seriously from cover to cover, and the Bible says to submit have the courage to submit. Turn off all the voices of the world and the media and the, and the politicians and all of the things that are going on around you. Turn those voices off and focus in to the prophetic voice, the prophetic word made more sure. Amen? Submission to God's word is the key to your sanctification. And prophecy is practical because prophecy promotes personal spiritual growth. As I mentioned, as we submit, we're washed in the word and we become faithful and we become fruitful in our lives. It's not just an act. We're not just pretending. The Holy Spirit of God is powerful and we begin to bear fruit in our lives and we begin to see not only our lives transform, but our families transform and the people around us that we love. We see that we are having an eternal impact on them. Foretelling prophecy causes us to learn to wait on the Lord, to be patient and endure in hope, to be watchful and to be discerning, to be discerning. As I said, turning off all those other deceptive voices. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, Matthew 16, 2 through 4, Jesus told the, uh, the Pharisees that they were missing it because they were not discerning of the foretelling type of prophecy. He's saying, you're not paying attention to what God has said would happen. And now that it's happening, let's look at this. Verse 2, Jesus says, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. 
Now, see, he's rebuking them by pointing out their wickedness in, in seeking signs to prove who he is instead of just believing the word of God and believing what God has said would happen. He said, you will receive a sign, a prophetic sign, but the only one you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah, folks, is the resurrection. It's that he went to the grave, he was laid in the tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And he's saying that is the sign that you will get because that is what was prophesied. And you'll either believe that, you'll either believe what God has said in his word, or you won't. For a believer is whether or not you believe God's word. So he says, in so doing, when they disbelieve the sign of Jonah, when Israel did, they rejected the Messiah. They turned away the Christ, the one that they had been looking for. And folks, prophecy is purposeful, it is powerful, and it is practical in the life of every believer we, we just simply cannot ignore one-third of Scripture. And I know that there, we're going to go over the various views of, of end-time prophecy and those who believe that it's all been fulfilled. And I just don't believe that Scripture dictates at all that, that all of this has been fulfilled. Number one, again, you have to change the nature and rules of prophecy to come to that conclusion. And we're going to talk all about that in the coming weeks and months. We cannot ignore it, but in fact... We have to go a step further regarding both foretelling prophecy and forthtelling prophecy. And in closing, let's quickly return to our original text in 2 Peter 1.19. 2 Peter 1.19. This is one of the reasons why I love this. It describes our situation. He says, and we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In this passage, the way Peter describes this world and the situation that we all find ourselves in is that we are living in pitch black darkness, wickedness, evil. It's dark. It's black. You look around. It's scary. Okay. He tells us that our only hope is the more sure prophetic word. And then he goes on to say that if you want to do well in this dark place, if you want to do well, and, and folks, what is it that we all want to hear when we stand before the Lord? What do we want to hear? Well done, my good and faithful servant. So if you want him to say, well done, then you have to do well. And if you're going to do well, Peter gives us right here what we need to do. If you're going to do well, you must pay attention to the prophetic word until Christ returns. Until Christ returns. We must pay attention as it is our only light in this dark place until our Lord and Savior returns to make all things new. He will do everything that he said he will do. We can have this blessed hope uh, in this dark world. The light of prophecy can be very meaningful in our lives. You don't have to become a fanatic, and you don't have to go to all the prophecy in times conferences, and, and uh, you don't have to leave your bags packed by the door just in case the rapture happens, right? Um, but we can have an expectant heart, an urgent heart. We can look ahead and say, Maranatha, even so, Lord, come quickly. That should be our prayer. 
And it's not a selfish prayer. It's not escapism. When we pray, Lord, come quickly, we're praying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring your righteousness from heaven to this earth in your due time. And all of the things that we deal with, the injustice, the hatred, all of the things in culture and society, you know, the, the trafficking and the abuse and, and addiction and all of these things that are destroying the world, we can look and with expectancy and know that when Christ returns, he's going to do away with all of that. He's going to wipe every tear from our eye and he's going to make all things new. Amen? That is our blessed hope. Don't lose that. Don't let that be stolen away from you. He is the eternal king of glory. And he has done such a mighty, miraculous work to reconcile you and I to himself. And he wants to give you an eternal home. And I'm speaking for a moment maybe to one of you in the room who may not be in that place where you are certain that you know him and that he knows you. Have you seen, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, have you seen your fallen and desperate state before God, knowing that you have no hope, that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself and your own righteousness to live eternally with our Heavenly Father. Do you understand that it's impossible, that in your fallen state you cannot abide the presence of a holy God, and that the only thing left for Him to do, in which He has purposed to do throughout all eternity, from eternity past, is those who reject Him, those who will not believe, they have their place in the lake of fire. But you understand he sent his son to live a perfect life and to take upon himself on that cruel cross the wrath of his own father on your behalf. He lived the perfect life that you could not live and he took upon himself the wrath of his father that you deserve in order to give you a place with him in glory. If only you will repent and believe. Repent and believe. Will you do that this morning? Will you make him your Lord, truly make him the Lord of your life? You will have that blessed hope to look forward to. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you now and we ask in the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would convict hearts, that you would open eyes and ears, that they would see the truth of your word, Lord, and that in them they would feel the urgency to cry out to you, Lord, save me. What shall I do to be saved? Lord, if there's anyone in this room today, anyone listening online or the podcast that that does not know you they see their fallen state their desperate state and they see now in the power of your spirit that you have shown them that reality lord i pray that they would cry out to you and that they would be saved that they would hear your voice and your sheep would follow lord we love you and we praise you for the opportunity to come together as your family as your church what a gift to us and our family lord I just pray that we would be, Lord, faithful to you and that we would be a true reflection of what you meant your church to be in this world. Lord, show us. Show us the areas of our lives that we are not submitting to you. Show us all the ugly parts of our lives. Lord, turn the light on. Show us where we do not reflect your holiness. And then, Lord God, we beg of you, change us, transform us, make us new, Lord Jesus. Make us like you. Lord, we pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. 
If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.